Jesus was a genius at asking questions. And sometimes he asked a person a question not because Jesus needed to know the answer, but because the person he was asking the question to needed to know the answer. One of those times was just after the great rejection that Jesus experienced in Jerusalem by the religious leaders. And he went into the Gentile territories for six months and went to a place called Caesarea Philippi, where he first announced his death. But before he did that, he asked his disciples two questions. We're in Matthew 17. He asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they thought a bit. They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. In other words, they're confused. <laughs> Ask five people, you get five different answers. They're confused. They don't know who you are exactly. So then he asked them a second question. Who do you say that I am? And of course, then Peter gave that great answer. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. But it seemed that the more confused the people were about who Jesus was and is, the more important it was for his followers to know who he is, both for their own sense of conviction and for their own ability to explain to others who Jesus is. And we're confused today about who Jesus is. There are many Jesuses. There are the cultural Jesus. There are all kinds of Jesuses out there. There's a uh, story about three great theologians who went to heaven, and Jesus asked them this question. He asked us, who do you say that I am? They said, why? Thou art the ground of being. Thou art the existential, unphrasable, unverbalized, unpropositional confrontation with the infinitude of inherent subjective reality. <laughs> and Jesus looked at these great theologians, and he said, huh? <laughs> but those, that's actually a workable answer, if anybody could understand it, if you took time to exegete it. Who is Jesus? If Jesus were to ask you, or if the waiter at the place where you're going to have lunch after church, if we get out of here on time, were to say to you, were you just at church? Yeah. Who is Jesus? What would you say? How would you answer that question? Or if somebody were to challenge you and say, why are you a Christian? Who is this Jesus? And you go home and you ask yourself, do I have a clear, concise, correct, biblical answer to that question that I can support from Scripture? Our task this morning is to look at four passages of Scripture, very briefly each. I will give you the passages. I would encourage you to write them down and come back and, and read them on your own and make this part of your vocabulary. Who is our Lord Jesus Christ? We sang about him over and over again this morning. Thank you, Tom, for that series of songs where we praise Jesus. The first passage is a summary passage, Colossians 2.9. Uh, the Colossian book, Paul wrote to the Colossian Christians because there was a, a lot of heresy about Jesus being introduced into the church there at Colossae and the other churches. He told the Colossian 
Christians, after you have read this letter, pass it on to other churches because there is confusion about who Jesus is. And the book of Colossians is one of the clearest Christological books in the Bible, exalting Jesus, explaining who Jesus is. But Paul gave us this very brief summary. In him, in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. All the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus in bodily form. The two points that he emphasized. First, undiminished deity belongs to him. In him, all the fullness of deity resides. Anything any being would need to qualify as God is in him. In him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives. How? In bodily form. He is undiminished deity and complete humanity united in one being forever. This epistle to the Colossians was written about 30 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, and Paul is writing in present tense, in him now. If you were to go to heaven and see Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in him in bodily form. When he became human, he never stopped being one of us. Incredible. His resurrection body was different in some ways than his body before the resurrection. We'll be talking about that on Easter. Talking about the resurrection. So what? What's it all about? But Jesus dwells. He is fully God. He is fully human. So that's a summary statement. Now we want to go to a passage that expands a bit on his deity. John chapter 1. John 1, these first few verses. Now, if you go to the end of the Gospel of John, John tells us why he wrote his Gospel. John's Gospel is a bit different than the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because Jesus, John is not telling the story of Jesus as much as he's defending his treatise that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So at the end of his book, he tells, this is why I wrote this book. These things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And the whole Gospel of John is built around seven great miracles, seven signs, seven pieces of evidence to help the reader get the reality that Jesus really is God. That's a hard thing to get your mind around, especially when you see him in human form. Now, if you're going to write a book to a neighbor or your children or your grandchildren because they asked you in a letter or an email and said, I, I'm confused. Who is, why would, do you believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? You say, well, I'm going to write him a letter. That's what John did. People are confused about Jesus, so I'm going to write a letter to help them believe that Jesus is the Christ. Here's how it began. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You say, well, I, I probably wouldn't start that way because I don't have a clue what that means. What's he, in the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God and the Logos was God. Logos was word, concept, idea. So what John is saying is in the beginning, now this, this, this isn't the beginning of Genesis. This goes back into the mists and the mysteries. Wherever your mind goes into infinity of, I remember my aunt LaVon telling me when I was a kid, I don't know how we got on the subject of God, Maybe I used it in a bad way, and she was helping me correct that. I don't know. But anyway, uh, she said, 
Did they just say, God always was? I was maybe, I don't know, 10, something, something like 10 years old. I went out in the, in the barn. I climbed up in the hay mound. There was a window in there. And I was laying there in the hay looking out that window, trying to get my head around always was. It was my first philosophical moment. <laughs> and maybe the last, I don't know. <clears throat> but John is saying, wherever your mind goes into what is always, in that beginning for you, was the word. Why that term? What is a word? Well, the word is the expression of an idea. See, I, 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 it, it's the way of telling someone else how they can get into what's going on inside here. You know, I'm thinking some thoughts. You don't know what I'm thinking. Or if I'm thinking. But when I use these little things called words, logoi, logos, is the expression of thought. So what John is telling us, as far back as your mind can go, always into infinity in the past, there was reason and idea and order and thought and that reason and idea and order was being expressed. In the beginning, there was this expression of idea. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. So now John has added, first he told us there was thought, there was expression of thought, there was expression of idea, and the one thinking and expressing was God. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God. God was thinking and expressing himself. And the third thing yet, the Logos was God. So God was thinking and expressing himself. So what John opened this gospel with is the idea that we have a God who wants to be known. It is inherent in the nature of God to communicate his nature, his will, his purposes. In the beginning was the expression of thought, and the one thinking and expressing was God, and what God was thinking about and expressing was about himself. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Word was God. He was, this Logos, now he's had he, so it's not a concept, it's a person. He was, this Logos, he was, in the be, uh, he was with God in the beginning. Now listen to this, he was eternal, he was with God in the beginning, through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made, in him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. So he put all these attributes that only relate to God, he gives to the Logos. So he introduced Jesus as God's self-expression. When God wanted us to know himself in a way that we had never known him before, he incarnated himself. The truth became human. This eternal God who created everything, who created life. And not only life, there's life in the trees. There's life in the grass. And there's life in the grasshopper. But a different kind of life. A 
a grasshopper is different than the grass because the grasshopper has a different kind of life. And then there's the life that only we have. It's called the light, the ability to comprehend, the ability to understand. He gave us the capacity to understand his expression. It's a beautiful picture of the relationship that God had from the beginning with us. And then we go all the way over to verse 14 where we read, the Logos became flesh. And suddenly, oh, ha, you're talking about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, the Word is with God, the Word was God, He created everything, He's a source of life, He enlightens us, oh, and He took on flesh. He became one of us. So we have this great statement that Jesus is the eternal God with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. So the first answer to the question, he is God. He is God. He is God's self-expression. He is the way God communicated with us in a way that he had never communicated before. And then we go to Philippians chapter 2. We said that Jesus is undiminished deity and complete humanity. The reason we say undiminished deity is that when Jesus took on flesh, when he became a man, he didn't, he didn't become God junior. He didn't become sort of God. He didn't, even though, as we see uh, what Paul wrote in Philippians, we're looking at Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude, the same mindset as Jesus Christ. Well, what was Jesus' mindset? Jesus, who being in the very nature God, so Paul repeats this idea that he is God, in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, something to be grasped onto. But rather he made himself nothing. He emptied himself by taking the nature of a bondservant and being made in human likeness. So he's saying that, that Jesus, from the foundation of the earth, from the beginning of all things, recognized that there was a time when he would become one of us to communicate God's love to us in a way that we could understand. A person speaking to persons. He was in the very nature the word is morphe, from which we get our word metamorphosis. His very nature, he was God. I think I've told you before about the worm and the butterfly. We've, most of you went through biology class somewhere along the way. You get the little green worm, you bring it in the house, and one day it becomes a butterfly. We did that with our boys. They came into my room, our bedroom one morning, all out of breath. Somebody took our worm and put a butterfly in there. Well, that green worm became a beautiful butterfly because it was always a beautiful butterfly. Metamorphosis says what was in there came out. Nobody stuck wings on the worm. It was inherent in its nature to be a butterfly. And that's what Paul is saying here. Being 
in the very nature, the morphe of God, he didn't regard equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. In other words, he was saying, uh, you know, I'm God. I created all this, but I'm going to go there and be a servant. I'm going to go there and just be one of them. The creator becomes one of the creatures. Now, if that had been me, I'd have said, okay, Father, I'll do that. But, you know, I want tattooed across my head. I'm really God. No. says he gave up that appearance. Being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something he had to hold on to. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the morphe of a servant, of a human, and being made in the likeness of, hu of men, of humanity. I thought this one time I was speaking at a, a graduation banquet for medical students, a Christian group, and, and uh, it was talking about this. And, and I thought of the illustration of these guys are just finishing, men and women finishing medical school. I said, one of you guys, to earn a little extra money while you're in medical school, you decided to ride on the garbage truck and pick up garbage. And, and you kind of like that. You get out in the fresh air while it's fresh between stops, and, and you're out there, and, and uh, you say it's a good exercise. So you're still doing it. I mean, you're this renowned brain surgeon, neurosurgeon, but you, on Wednesdays, you take off and you go collect garbage. So you're at this party. Everybody's dressed up in formal wear and everything, and you're standing there with your spouse, and somebody says, so what do you do? And you say, I'm a garbage man. And your spouse says, well, tell them the rest. Tell them the rest. I mean, in our culture, our society, doctors have a different status than garbage men. And people should know who you really are. And he said, well, that's who I really am. And that's the image. Jesus said, I am God, but I'm going to pose as a human. I don't need to wear around my neck or have a halo or have a sign that says, I am God. He said, no, no, no. Listen to what it says again. Who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. So Paul said, just as it is true that he has the morphe, all the essential characteristics needed to be God, so he has all the essential characteristics needed to be human. He is fully God, undiminished deity, and complete humanity, united in one being forever. Colossians 2.9. John 1, 1 through 5, expands on his deity. Philippians 2 expands on his humanity. But we're still left with the question of why. And why would God become human? What was the big purpose of it? Well, Paul alluded to it there. In, uh, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. But we go to Hebrews for our fourth passage. Colossians 2, John 1, Philippians 2, Hebrews 1. And here's what the writer of Hebrews said. In the past, God spoke to us, to our ancestors, through the prophets, at many times, and in various ways. So he first he validates, this is written to, to Jewish Christians who were in danger of abandoning the faith because of the pressures being put on them. And so the first thing the writer did is validate their Jewish belief. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. At many times and in many ways. 
But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. The Logos became flesh. The self-revealing God, the God who thinks and speaks, the God who thinks and speaks and reveals the truth about himself, has made the ultimate leap to communicate with us. He became one of us. He took on flesh. His mission was so crucial to him that he humbled himself when the creator became one of the creatures. Because he couldn't die as God. He died as one of us to pay the penalty for our sins. He lived a perfect life. He was without sin, yet he paid the penalty for sin, yours and mine. And so he said, God, the writer says, God spoke to us in his son. And listen to these attributes. His son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. After he had made sacrifice, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down. He came to earth. He took on flesh. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, to make purification for sins. So that you and I could have eternal life because he was willing to die in our place. Undiminished deity, complete humanity, united in one being forever. To reveal God to us in a way that we have never been able to see God before. And to take our place to pay for our sins so that we could have eternal life. And then he sat down at the right hand of the Father where Hebrews tells us, the book of Hebrews tells us, he is functioning forever as our high priest, as our intercessor. When Satan comes and says, did you see what John did? That rat. Jesus says, he's one of mine. He's one of mine. He confessed that. I forgave that. Leave him alone. He's one of mine. Going back to John's statement, we said the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Only one place in all time, and only one moment in all time, could grace and truth embrace. You see, truth stands with a hard, clear, I, saying truth is truth. 
And God's truth said there are things that you will do that will destroy your life called sin. And sin has terrible consequences. And the wages of sin is death. And so the human world is destined to die in their sin. You cannot compromise on truth. What the Bible says, it says. That's truth. Thank God for truth. But over here is grace. Grace's eyes are red with tears. Often we see grace kneeling down next to a broken sinner. Grace puts her arm around the broken sinner. It says, we love you. And God forgives you. And truth says, wait a minute. They violated the truth. You can't violate the truth. Grace says yes. Because Jesus paid for that sin that that person committed. Truth, thank God for truth. Grace, thank God for grace. How do you reconcile these two? At the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the only way John could write later in his epistle. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. He doesn't violate truth. He paid the penalty for your sin. So with complete truth and complete justice, he can say, Grace, come on over here. We've got another one that came in. We've got another one that confessed her sin. And we can embrace this person in truth because the real truth is that the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And only in Jesus Christ the grace and truth embrace. Has that happened in your life? Have you confronted the truth of the scripture? That the wages of sin is eternal separation from God? And that the only hope we have is God's grace. But God says to you, come in. I know you've sinned. Accept my gift. Confess your sin. I will forgive you without violating justice or truth. You say, I'm a Christian, been a Christian for a long time. But are there any things back in your life where you say, I dwell on this. I can't get rid of the guilt. I did a terrible thing. And it's blocking my open, clear sense of a relationship with God or with other people. Jesus says, come. 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 Grace and truth are yours. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. Jesus, undiminished deity, complete humanity, united to one being forever. Colossians 2.9. What do you mean by undiminished deity? 
John chapter 1. What do you mean by complete humanity? Philippians chapter 2. Why would God do that? Hebrews chapter 1. Be an articulate Christian. Ask yourself that question that Jesus wants you to know the answer to. That's why he asks us. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you today? Who will Jesus be to you when you violate the principles of Scripture? Again, if you're like me, you will. Can you accept the fact that without violating his truth, God extends you his grace?